0: So good morning and this morning we're looking at the final in our series of big questions and it's been really good in this course i think to talk about these big questions to get them out in the open to acknowledge that we don't have perfect answers but how valuable it's been to voice our questions and our doubts and to have discussions. so i hope this morning will be in the same vein why does a good god allow suffering I feel like this is the question that we're all secretly scared of. It's certainly daunting to stand up here and talk about it this morning. Even those of us who are confident in our faith can feel weak when we feel this question. We do believe that God is good. We've seen it in our own lives, even when we have suffered. And yet, in the face of suffering, we see throughout the world in so many forms. Can we really make sense of it in any meaningful way? I think this is probably the single most asked question by those challenging faith in God. Sometimes it feels like our whole faith is a fraud if we can't answer this question. I can't promise you today to provide you with a neatly wrapped up answer, packaged and ready to pass on and heave a sigh of relief. But this morning is a time to try to explore some of the issues tied up in this very real and troubling question. So let's have a think first about who or what is responsible for suffering. In our family, we have a tradition that when you stab your toe or hit your head on a kitchen cabinet perhaps, or something else ro- really annoying like that, you can punch, lightly the person nearest to you. Usually, my head, the kitchen cabinet, Andy's arm. It really does feel good. You instantly feel better passing the blame onto someone else. When we ask, why does God allow suffering? I think that sometimes unspoken within that question is a belief that God is really responsible for all the evil and suffering in the world, that he is to blame, that suffering is from him. But what does the Bible say about evil and suffering? I Googled it, yes, we do Google things sometimes for sermons. Really interesting results here. Just a few verses from the Bible that even Google brought up about evil and suffering. Psalm 34. Turn from evil and do good. 1 Thessalonians 5. Reject every kind of evil. Proverbs 8. To fear the Lord is to hate evil. Romans 12. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Ephesians 6. Put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Luke 4. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the spirit to the desert. For 40 days he was tempted by the devil. 1 Peter 5. Be alert and of sober mind, for your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Ephesians 6.12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, authorities and powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Psalm 147, God heals the broken hearted and binds up their wounds. 1 Peter 2, by his wounds you have been healed. Isaiah 41, fear not for I am with you, I will strengthen you, I will help you. Matthew 9, Jesus went throughout the towns and villages, healing every disease and sickness. I could go on. God is definitely not on the side of evil and suffering. He challenges it, he resists it, he changes it, he heals it. The Bible is very clear that evil entered the world through humanity's disobedience to God. Our desire to know all that God knows to be equal to him, to put ourselves in the place of God. We have a responsibility. And the one who leads us into temptation, sometimes in very subtle ways, has a responsibility. It's strange, I think, that in 21st century culture, we find it acceptable to talk about just about everything and even to talk about God but not, I think, to talk about the devil or Satan. I find it embarrassing. I don't want people to think I believe in a red-horned Halloween-type imp or a cartoon figure whispering temptations in a character's ear. And yet, do I believe that God is behind the wars, the droughts, the illnesses, betrayals, violence and fraud that goes on in the world? No, I absolutely don't. Do I like to think about who or what is behind them. No, I don't. It seems like although we're happy to believe in God whilst not knowing exactly what he is like or looks like, we're not so happy to accept the devil's existence because we cannot figure out what he looks like or what he's like. So we turn away and mumble in an embarrassed way when talk turns to the source of evil and suffering. But the Bible is clear. That evil entered the world through humanity's disobedience to God. By our desire to know all that God knows. To put ourselves in the place of God. A temptation laid before us by the devil. The creation stories in Genesis convey truths of great importance to us. And we can miss so much if we pick and choose which of those truths we take hold of and which we ignore. Evil comes from the devil in how he corrupted the good that God created and it comes from the choices we make which have their roots in the same corruption of the good, in what the Bible calls sin. So let's just touch on our responsibility for suffering. We often choose to be willfully blind, but if we face facts, a lot of the world's suffering is our own fault. Much suffering is caused by the way we fail to share the world's resources fairly. Much suffering is caused by our desire for power and wealth. Much suffering is caused by our exploitation of the earth's natural resources. Much suffering is caused by our consumerism and pursuit of comfort and pleasure, irrespective of the cost. Maybe we should sort our own behaviour before we blame God. The immediate cause of suffering, floods, fires, wars, might be several times removed from us, but it is our demands, our expectations that fuel the way the world works. These are the choices we make, that generations before us have made, we continue to make, and if we're not careful, we have trained future generations to make. Selfish choices that produce much of the world's suffering. And we are not compelled to live like this. We choose to, but still we cling to blaming God. We ask, why does God allow it? Why did he make us this way? Why did he give us the choice to make bad choices? It's not our fault you made us this way, God. Why did you give the devil airtime? Why didn't you make us differently? I wonder if any of you have seen the film, The Stepford Wives. I saw it some years ago and it made a big impression. A young couple move into a suburb where everything is perfect. Beautiful homes, shops, gardens, all is peaceful and lovely. As the couple settle in and begin to get to know people, they realize that there is something odd. The woman's friends disappear from time to time and come back, but they're different. They're tamer, no fun, no sparkle, no interest of their own, no creativity. They do nothing but housework, mow the lawn and go to the club. Slowly, it dawns on the woman that her friends are being changed from free-thinking, intelligent women into compliant wives dedicated solely to homemaking. Their brains are being operated on, and it's her turn next. The effect is absolutely chilling, a living death. Or let me introduce you to a totalitarian regime. A totalitarian regime is defined by the dictionary as one characterised by systematic and violent political repression by secret police, army, paramilitary and death squads. These regimes control what people do in their private lives as well as their public lives the following are illegal and punishable by execution in north korea making an international phone call listening watching or reading foreign music films or books driving if you're female wearing jeans leaving the country telling people about jesus and things that are controlled by the state include your name your haircut your job where you live The internet and the media. But this is not the life that God has given to us. We read in the creation story, God said, let there be light. Permission giving power, not domination or force. God gave and continues to give choices, freedom. Do we really wish God had made us with no choices? Human lives are full of creativity, imagination, choices, freedom. We are each wonderfully different. We are God's masterpiece, we're told in Ephesians 2.10. He's given us great variety to enjoy, life to explore, science to discover, art to make, music to dance to, fun to have, thoughts to challenge, choices to make. God chose to give us freedom Perhaps that's something we underestimate in our free country, a country built on and shaped by Christianity itself, where our individuality is, by and large, respected and protected. But this is not something to be taken for granted. It is to be appreciated, celebrated, enjoyed, and to be grateful to God for. This freedom rests on him. Freedom is wonderful But the world is not like we want it to be, is it? It is not the Shangri-La we fantasise about, where no one ages or gets ill. No one suffers hunger or homelessness, betrayal, grief or loss. And perhaps our expectations of God are disappointed. We're not satisfied with his world. We're not satisfied with his decision to give us freedom. He's not met our expectations. I wonder where those expectations of God come from. The theologian John Swinton points out that our viewpoint today here is very different from other societies past and present. This right to happiness, he thinks, stems from the scientific and philosophical explosion of the enlightenment in the 17th and 18th century Western world. In those years, we learned so much about science and made so much progress in improving our lives that we came to believe we could solve all ills. Our abilities, our reason, became the overriding and defining means by which we considered life, and our expectations have been shaped into demanding just that, scientific and philosophical answers for God, his existence and his choices. God must be wrong if he can't satisfy us. So what is God's response, this unsatisfactory, illogical God? What does God do in response to evil and suffering? Let us remind ourselves who God is. Blaise Pascal describes the God that our culture tries to depict as an impersonal, free-floating, abstract, logic-satisfying equation and asks how could such a God respond to evil? But the Bible tells us, and many of us have experienced, that God is a living, relational, active being, personal, engaged and active in history and in our lives. His actions, his engagement with us is illogical and unreasonable, and it's based on that most illogical and unreasonable of things, love. Our choices lead to such suffering, such sadness, such a different way of life than the way he hoped for us, that he offers us a second chance, again a choice, a choice of a new life. In this new life following Jesus, we still have suffering, but we do not walk through it alone. We endure it with the comfort and presence of one who understands, has been through such suffering. Death, betrayal, isolation, injustice, torture, violence, hunger, loss, bereavement. He has been through it all. And he shows us something beyond. Resurrection. In the suffering, there can be resurrection. The whole of life holds this truth in it, doesn't it? Resurrection is, unsurprisingly perhaps, built into our world, pointing to the resurrection to come. Nature is perhaps one of the clearest illustrations of this. New life each spring, out of the bleak barrenness of winter. A friend living with depression once told me that she had challenged herself to look for the many tiny acts of resurrection each day. Bulbs breaking forth from frozen ground, the nourishing strength of a bowl of soup, The smile when you bump into a friend on the street. The stirring in your heart as you listen to music. A moment of peace and courage on the hospital ward. Hidden in the darkness, there is light that breaks out. Our world holds promises of the light that has overcome the darkness. The day's small resurrections point to a greater permanent resurrection. The kingdom of God breaks through in acts of faithful kindness, in patient service, sometimes in miraculous answers to prayer, healings even. Many of us will have stories that illustrate this light in the darkness, this glimpse of the future. Our third child was stillborn, despite the efforts of a crack team of medics at King's College Hospital who performed heart surgery on her while I was carrying her. We were devastated, traumatised and bereft. But one morning, a few weeks later, before church, I was ironing. I can't believe that was me. And I was praying quietly to soothe myself. Out of nowhere, I suddenly had a powerful sense that she was there. A young woman in my mind's eye. And the Holy Spirit was holding her hand, saying, don't worry, I have her. God's peace and comfort in the midst of loss, light in the darkness, hope of resurrection. Experiences like these are like a trailer at the cinema. Paul tells us in Corinthians 13, 12, For now in this life we see things imperfectly, but God sees the bigger picture, and one day he will reveal it to us. In her book Why, Sharon Dirks tells the story of a young woman with MS. She describes how she's experienced God in her illness. God is not unemotional about my suffering, she says, but in fact has the awful job of watching me go through something that was never part of his design for the world. He doesn't fold his arms and stand back from me. He comes into my struggles and works through them. Through MS and through other people, I have experienced God's love in a different way. God's love is more than a cosmic, I love the world and everyone in it. It's intimate. I love you and have deep personal concern for you, Rachel. I experience a strong peace at times when I should be fearful and also very practical provisions of help and care when I most need them. God doesn't stand at a distance, impassive and unfeeling. He came into the pain and powerlessness of life and created a way for this beautiful yet imperfect earth to be transformed. John Stott wrote, There is still a question mark over human suffering, but over it we boldly stamp another mark, the cross that symbolises divine suffering. A new life in the kingdom of God starting in our lives in this world as we follow Jesus and continuing into a new earth with a new order of things, the new order we heard about in our reading, in the full presence of a God of love. Jesus gives us a new narrative for our suffering. Our pain does not have to be the defining factor of our lives. We are part of his death, yes, but also part of his resurrection too. As Richard Rohr describes it, We are part of a storyline that is going somewhere good. Rachel, the young woman with MS, continues, MS is part of my story, but it is not the end of my story. 2 Corinthians 4 says, although outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. That's what eternal life looks like to me. There is an inner change that means God is with me now. God lives with me right now changing me and the way I see and do life. Do we, do I, do you, need to somehow reconnect with this storyline that is going somewhere good? Has your own narrative got bogged down with the expectations of our society, perhaps? Or have our own painful circumstances made it hard to believe? As I close... I invite us all now to take a few moments in the quiet to focus on God's promise of transformation, of restoration or resurrection, this storyline that is going somewhere good. And then you might like to pray this simple prayer with me, Holy Spirit, breathe new life into my story. So let's be still in God's presence. I'm gonna read the verses from Revelation again and then hold the silence with that prayer. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, And let's pray together. Holy Spirit, breathe new life into my story.